Hi, it's Michael here. In this episode, we talk about suicide, which we appreciate can be distressing. If you or someone you know needs mental health support, we'd suggest ringing the Samaritans on 116123, or you can download the Hub of Hope app to find support that's right for you. Please look after yourself and each other, and we hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Product Confidential and today we're joined with Nick Javetta who um, hopefully a lot of people have seen from all of his great content he posts on LinkedIn um, and if you have you'll know that Nick's a massive advocate for mental health and also does a ton of product work and has got such an interesting background and focuses on working with lots of really cool companies now so I'll let Nick do the proper intro so over to you. Hi even hi Michael thank you so much for having me it's awesome to be here so yeah, I'm I'm Nick, like you say, Evie. Uh, we actually connected on LinkedIn, funnily enough, which probably tells you a lot about where I spend a lot, a lot of my time. I've been in product for about 10 years now, uh, and I worked in lots of different contexts, primarily retail and grocery. But in 2018, I, opened up, I also opened up about my mental health journey. And when I shared that mental health journey, it unlocked a much deeper-seated passion and purpose, even than product. And I do love product, but... Um, when I started to recognize the imperative in our country and in our workforce for well-being, it really set me on a journey. And the journey where I've got to today is that 18 months ago, I founded a business, probably again, similar time to you. Uh, my business is called Stories Matter. And the business exists for a very simple purpose. There's a lot of complexity kind of lying beneath it. But my business exists to try and make work 1% better every day. So I'm bringing... I'm bringing to the front my experience in product. I do a lot of work in culture and leadership change. And of course, I'm super passionate about, about making well-being an imperative for all of us. Honestly, it sounds like, like you say, such a simple thing to say, make work better for 1% each day. But it's there's a lot of complexity that goes into that. And we know it's not always a linear journey. So I'm sure we'll dig into some of the details. But I like that as a mission. Um, yeah, and we've also got Michael here still. Hi everyone, you okay? Little How you doing? <laughs> I, um... So we'll be asking a few different questions on a few of these topics as we go through. But Nick, I wanted to kick off and start with, I know that we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, but last week you carried the baton of hope. Um, and I we did. caught up on how that was. So I'd love to hear about how that day was and what made you want to do that in the first place. Yeah, wow. Um, so the baton of hope for anyone that doesn't know is aiming to be the UK's largest um, suicide awareness and prevention initiative. We've got loads of incredible work that happens on this topic. But you know, the sad reality is that suicide is still the biggest killer among lots of different uh, parts of our society. And men and women aged under 35, um, suicide is the biggest killer for that age group. Unfortunately, I'm just outside of that age group, sadly for me. But um, you know, it it's something I'm passionate about because yeah, you know, I've been in in worlds and I've had experiences that have taken me to the edge myself. And I know people who unfortunately have have died by suicide. The baton of hope has been set up, like I say, to to raise awareness and to shine a light and to start conversations on it. Because I think you know, one of the biggest challenges in in our country is even using the word people find really difficult. People find it difficult to have conversations with others who they think are struggling with their mental health. I and mean, heck, we have enough 
challenge trying to have a, uh, an internal conversation if we're struggling with our mental health. So I applied to be a baton of hope bearer, not not really expecting much, and got and got the email. So I spent uh, some time in London last week. There was the baton started in Scotland, I think, and ended up in London. Thousands of just normal people who have been affected by the topic and want to play our part. Um, I only carried the baton for 500 meters, and I hadn't realised it's a very short distance. Um, and I, you know, it was a real blend of kind of solid solidarity and solitude i think you know i was hearing some amazing stories from from lots of different people when i took the baton from the previous baton bearer she just broke down in tears Mm -hmm. and that was that kind of said it all to all for me you know that that's the power um of the baton that's the power of of sharing stories and it will live with me forever for anyone who wants to look up the baton of hope it is way heavier than it looks yeah, so I think my, my well. biggest fear was I do not want to drop this thing. I don't want to be that guy. Um, but I managed to to uh, carry the baton and pass it off successfully to the next baton bearer. And I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, um, like you say, it's a topic that impacts so many people and we don't speak about it enough. But the way that we're trying to reframe it and we're trying to talk about the fact that it's a baton for hope and that there's potential out there and there's people that are actually trying to make these movements where like for someone that suffered from their own mental health I've always and I also broke my hip and I 100% would say that I'd rather have the physical battle than the mental battle it's so difficult it's one of the most challenging things that you can face and reframing that and knowing that there's people out there to support you and it is a something of hope and it can get better I think is a really important movement and it's pretty essential when you're in a dark place hope is sometimes the only thing that you've got to cling on to but the narrative is changing uh you know there there's campaigners like three dads walking that want to get age appropriate uh, education in into schooling and i i support that you know i talk to my children not using that terminology but i talk to my children about the importance of not running away from their feelings and i talk to them about the importance of seeking help or talking about how they're feeling or recognizing it not necessarily to me so that is changing but unfortunately it's not changing fast enough for our generation and the generation that's gone before us that still has a lot of that shame and stigma attached to it yeah yeah for sure and um nick i know that obviously you mentioned earlier as well that you started opening up about your own mental health journey from around 2018 um, and I know that that's a lot of what's got you to this point in terms of the work you do, et cetera, et cetera. So um, for context for everyone, is there a bit more that you'd like to share on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I share very, very openly and, and very sort of candidly about it. But I've when I now I now say that I thrive with my anxiety because anxiety is the, is kind of the main thing that I've struggled with. You know, when I was a teenager growing up, I didn't call it anxiety. I just knew that. I overthought a lot. I felt very isolated. I didn't really know who I was. I didn't really feel like I was in control of my own head or in control of my own life. And that's that's a super scary place to be when you also don't know how to express what you're feeling. You don't feel like there's any support out there for you. Um, I've learned through lots of hard work and far too many years that you know, it's a very simple truth that we we either all ignore or we just don't know because we don't ever get told it but we've all got mental health why because we've all got a brain our mental health shifts from being very good to sometimes very bad and somewhere in between 
but there's so much we can do to build those those foundations that allow us to cope better mm-hmm. yeah, we can build our resilience we can optimize our mindset we can lean in and develop some of the human skills some of the skills that in the workplace i think are still underrated underserved and frankly i I think they're underappreciated for too long and i think this is as true in product as any other industry we focus way too much on the technical skills you know i was i was looking kind of prior to this call you still have this definition of a hard skill and a soft skill i don't like the framing of these skills as soft because there is nothing soft about them you know soft i think historically if you were to say to someone you're soft it's got lots of negative connotations mm-hmm. and it just doesn't need to because i mean you can't see the t-shirt i'm wearing because i've got my um camera blur but the t-shirt is very simple it says we're all human here and we, we don't lean into our our humanity enough and you know, for a long time i i didn't do that once i did that once i you know, got the right help and and um worked through it i see my mental health as a as a superpower and it's taken me on a pretty amazing journey over the last five years since since I did that. No, I agree. And I think it's such an interesting thing because it's something that we're never taught. Even when I was at school, it was like you're taught to talk about feelings or taught, taught to talk about things that impact you negatively, like bullying, for example. But it's like this, I was brought up with this expectation that something external had to happen. And I remember experiencing depression when I was like 20 and I was just crying all the time for no reason. And I actually just genuinely didn't know why, because I didn't know it was a thing. And then no one taught you like how to deal with those emotions through that 20 years of my life. And then the same when you get to work, it's like, I still think sometimes there's a stigma where sometimes if you feel like you need to take a step back or you're having a bad day, it can be seen as being weak. And it's like, because we've not been taught to hone those skills or how important those skills are. And only I think as you get older and you realize and learn compassion and you go through your own therapy and your own journey and you realize how important some of those bits are that you go, oh great, like I can actually use this to my advantage and I understand other people way better around me. I found as well, um, what you said at the top of the episode, talking about the pattern of hope, how uh, people skirt around the word suicide and no one wants to actually talk about it. I remember um, going on mental health first aid training. One of the things that I took away from it and shocked me was the person was saying, if you think someone is depressed and they, they talk about it, ask them, have you had any suicidal thoughts? And I just remember thinking, wow, that is the last thing instinctively I would think to do. I'd be thinking, don't mention suicide because what if you put it in the head? But what they were teaching you on that course is you're not going to put the concept of suicide in someone's head they're not going to hear that and go oh yeah maybe but if someone is at that point where they're thinking of taking a life it's got that bad being asked that question can sometimes be like um, a valve being released when they can say yes I actually am and actually allowing them the space to have that conversation and say yeah that, that that's where I'm at actually can sometimes be the thing that um, helps people start seeking the help that they need so it's it's yeah it's it's a taboo subject because people are scared of saying the wrong thing I certainly would have been that that training really changed my perspective um but I think it's it's amazing the work that that you and others in this space do to to as you said change the narrative I think it's so important uh not just in the workplace but in life in general yeah I mean it's it's such a good point I mean I 
Evie, Evie knows whenever we're exchanging WhatsApp, she knows that I spin so many plates and I describe myself as multi-passionate because I am passionate about product. But like I said, at, at the top, I'm passionate about lots of different topics. And one of the the other roles I perform is um, I'm a mental health trainer for a, char- for a charity. And to your point, you know, one of the very simplest strategies that I think everyone in this country should learn are the basics of how you ask questions by being direct. What you just described there, that simple question can literally be a lifesaver. Mm-hmm. And not enough people understand that. We're not doing enough to educate our children on it. We're not doing enough in the workplace on it. And very often, as we know, as product people, we can massively over-engineer the solutions to problems. I think part of the solution to the mental health epidemic that we're in is just for all of us to get more comfortable asking direct conversations and pushing awkwardness out the way. Screw the stiff upper lip, screw the man up culture and just get real, just get human. You know, I said it earlier, I honestly think that could not solve, but I definitely think it could improve the way that we deal with mental health in uh, in this country. It's good that it's changing. I, I remember... Um... My, I've only had like one really bad episode with, with mental health, I'd say. And and like Evie said, it was, it was in my 20s as well, early 20s. And I just remember feeling so depressed and not understanding why, not having a reason why. And because I didn't have a reason why, and I'd had this concept of, oh, there's no such thing as depression growing up, just didn't believe in it. And it took me getting it myself to think, oh no, this this definitely is a thing. And that's how naive I was as a teenager. But then because I'd had this image of, oh, it's a load of nonsense, people are just sad, why don't they just get on with it? When I was feeling it, I thought, well, I can't tell anyone because I'm really ashamed that I'm feeling this way. And I didn't tell anyone for probably about a year and it got, it got really, really dark in my head and, and in my life at that point. To the point where I kind of ended up having a breakdown and my mum my mum could just tell and my mum probably asked like a direct question as as you've just mentioned. And it really was from there I was able to talk about it and all this time of like it just being my secret in my head, I felt this way, to yeah, talking about it and then eventually seeking help with it. Just a life changer. So I I, I really, really do love the fact that now I don't think well, I don't know. I'm sure that like toxic attitude that I held myself still exists, but I think there's there's lots of people like yourself challenging that and and showing an alternative to to that nonsense point of view that this is something that needs to just be like hidden away kind of thing because that you know it will challenge uh, people's lives that that thinking. Yeah, and then <clears throat> Nick, I know that obviously one of the things that you mentioned a bit earlier on was around mindset and especially how we use that mindset and those skills at work um, and trying to flip this on the other side, because um, I think it's also important, like you say, to talk about how you can use your own mental health and use your own ways of operating to thrive and see those bits of strength. So um, when it comes down to mindset, what do you think is important in the workplace? Well, there's a question, Evie. That's a huge question. Where do we start with that? Um, Wherever you like. <laughs> I mean, I think you know, if I try and hone it into the world in which we're all operating and your listeners are in within within the product space, I think we have some general principles and then some slightly more specific ones. The first thing I would say about mindset, because I've been challenged on this before and I'm starting to sort of shift my perspective slightly, is that 
minds to get into a good space with a mindset i think is a collective effort and what i mean by that is that i think everybody so anyone listening who is you know experienced pm a product leader a pa or a ba who's trying to move into product a graduate who wants to get into products as a career you have the opportunity irrespective of who you are and where you've come from to to choose your attitude to choose your mindset to spend time being intentional about your thought processes to think about the habits that serve you and the habits that don't to think about whether your coping strategies are healthy or, or unhealthy you know, there's kind of lots of layers to developing the right mindset the right the right mindset by the way in my opinion is a growth mindset and when you think about a growth mindset in a product context it gets more interesting but a growth mindset basically means that you see the world as expansive you see that the world has opportunities you feel fear because it's a normal human response, but most of the time you push it to one side and you say to hell with it, let's see what happens. We know that the best product people believe in iteration, believe in experimentation. Well, that means by definition that you've got to get more comfortable with pushing yourself out there and reframing how you view failure. Your failure for so long, especially in the workplace, has been viewed as a weakness, as I said earlier these soft skills as they're badged you know in product you're only you only fail if you're not moving forward you know a growth mindset says it's not necessarily about the result it's about the process to get there are you learning are you growing yeah Yeah. if you don't if you don't learn and you're only focused on the end result to me you're missing 95 percent of the benefit um and I think you know, that's the individual part of mindset and where, you know, this is where I start to get challenged and where I've started to develop my, my own mindset, I guess, is that, you know, some folks have, have, have challenged me on the fact that you know, some individuals don't always have the right circumstances or the right environment in which they can cultivate a growth mindset. And I accept that. I challenge it to a point because I think we, we all have the, op- the option to, to choose, but your businesses, workforce, product leaders, the environments that they create, the cultures that they create will have a direct impact on whether or not someone feels able to have a, to, to um, illustrate, to demonstrate a growth mindset. If you're in a team that is shipping um, features or is working on a two-year waterfall program with set deliveries, I kind of get why you're going to struggle to have, to have a, a growth mindset because everything in your world is fixed, predictable, and known. You're working in that way, I, I accept, is not necessarily conducive to that growth mindset. So if we're going to start to move towards the right kind of mindset for product people, the responsibility in my eyes sits between the individual but also the collective, the leadership, the business at large. Yeah, and I think in general it's such an interesting thing because there are obviously a lot of organisations People operate in their own world and some people think that those organizations don't exist anymore, but they do. Like some of those still do exist. And I think you can influence to a certain extent and you can still try and adopt that mindset and say, okay, well, within this sphere, I have this level of control. How can I do these things in this space? But it also can become super demoralizing and difficult and you use all of your energy in the wrong spaces because you can't have as much impact as you want. So that's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it goes back a little bit to my point earlier about 
when you have an attitude of of iteration and learning what you can also start to cultivate is a sense of controlling you controlling the controllables you know i i'm gonna i'm gonna still steal the phrase but pockets of brilliance you know i'm sure you can in the show notes link to pippa who came up up with a concept but great product or great product organizations don't start by becoming great they start because one pm or one team wants to do things differently wants to show up in a different way and you know that that's the world that obviously you and i operate within ev obviously michael you're a, a really big organization i learned my product craft in organizations that were undergoing product transformations and it was messy and it was chaotic and i had to be really pragmatic and i think pragmatism is a, a core component of mindset and that that's how i can bring all of myself to the coaching work i do now because i found that i've really found my sweet spot in the kind of product transformation coaching i work with massive businesses often that have low to little product maturity but i help them find the pockets of brilliance i help them develop the one percent better everyday mindset and i'm not doing it with thousands of people or hundreds of people i'm doing it with four or five people mm-hmm. but those four or five people show another four or five people there's a different way of doing something they prove the value they demonstrate the thinking about outcomes instead of outputs guess what it makes financial sense and it's way better for the well-being and the innovation capabilities of the team and suddenly one pilot team becomes two becomes 10 becomes 20 and it might take two three four five years but you will every day you will feel and you will observe change yeah and by doing it that way i think the benefits are that you're getting everyone on the ground to go with that shift and they're going on that journey and that movement, which means that you change culture over time from it might be a 10 on product culture to getting it to an 80. I don't think 100 is possible. (laughs) (laughs) Always difficult areas and there's always going to be some people that you can't quite bring on board, but you can make a huge difference by just getting some momentum behind some smaller changes as opposed to trying to overwhelm everyone. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other component, I suppose, to that and to the work I do is I always say that I focus on the people first and then I focus on the product and lastly, the process. If you don't have the people in the right place, there's absolutely no point trying to get the product thinking right. And for goodness sake, don't go anywhere near the process. The process is the, in my opinion, is the last thing that you optimize. The first thing you've got to work on is the people because unless the people have the right mindset unless you're balancing the technical skills of how to build great products with the, with those human skills i really believe that you're you're capping the potential of the product hugely because you'll end up getting teams that think in a very narrow-minded way and we all know that that's absolutely no good when you're trying to serve different great um types of people different problems when you're trying to explore new territories you need to be very expansive and very open-minded speaking about the people side of things um obviously being in product can be a really demanding role what signs would you say um to look for in colleagues that might be on the edge a bit and might need some support like what are the signs that someone could do with with some assistance from a colleague that's an awesome question. I love the question because 
there are things that we can all do that are obvious and there are things that we can all do that are more nuanced. I think when you work virtual, it becomes way more difficult. One of the one of the things that I think could be quite interesting because I've felt this myself is either as a peer to a product manager or if, you're, or if you're in a team, say if you're an engineer or if you're a designer, if your product manager seems to have their hands in absolutely every pie, that's normally a sign that they're on the what I call the hero's quest where that individual is doing what they believe a product manager to, uh, should be doing, which is to do everything. So there has been this notion in the past, and I, I think I've probably used it myself about a, a PM being the CEO of the product. But I actually think it's quite it's quite a dangerous way of framing it because you know a a PM does not have anywhere near that level of responsibility, but b a CEO kind of suggests that you have ultimate authority to make really big decisions. And a PM for me, if I had to try and describe it in a few simple words, you're a facilitator and a dot connector. You're not the big bad wolf. You're not taking everything on your shoulder. You're not making all the decisions. You're you're collaborating. You're you're facilitating. And when I've when I was struggling, you know, in my work uh, as a PM and as a product leader, I was trying to do everything. Yeah, you know, I was I was I was in the jeers till goodness knows what time at night. I was trying to engage every single stakeholder under the sun to get feedback. I was spending I mean I don't know how many hours I was losing to tweaking roadmaps. And making what were fairly minor changes, but but to me felt you know critical to make sure I was always trying to communicate the right message to the right person at the right time. But the reality of being a great product person is you have to learn how to say no. If you see a product manager who is saying yes to a lot, and as a team you feel a lot of demand coming in, it might be that the product manager needs a bit of help in their product management skills, or it might just be that they are just so overwhelmed and so overworked the the best way they know how to cope is to placate because saying yes is often way easier than saying no especially when you're especially when you know when you're struggling so that i'll be quite interested on your take on that because it might not be an obvious sign that that people would associate with with struggle but i've seen it in, in quite a few people i think i've not considered that before but it makes a lot of sense I love that idea of the hero's quest and that feeling that I have to do everything. And I think what's dangerous about that feeling is you probably get a lot of positive reinforcement for it as well, because you're celebrated as the person that always takes things on and all they get things done and they do that. But, you know, we've all got limits, haven't we? And you can't continue performing heroics. Uh, It's not sustainable to to keep uh, acting that way. And I don't think I would have considered looking at another colleague saying yes to everything as a red flag. I probably wouldn't thinking, oh, they're smashing it. But I think from this conversation, I would probably be thinking, yeah, they are smashing it, but I might just check and see how they're doing as well. Um, so thanks a lot for that, Nick. That's that's really good advice. No, I think it's super helpful because like you say, you're at a danger of it becoming your identity. Um, and if that's what everyone relies on you for, then you become, it kind of gets worse because you become the easy target of going, oh, well, I know that if I go over to Nick and ask that, he'll probably do it because he does everything. There you go. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and um, that's why those those kind of human skills I keep talking about, you know, I've got a list of some of them here, you know, empathy, compassionate, active listening, resilience, curiosity, learning to say no, communicating, negotiation. You know, some of those skills 
are so essential when you're working with a team. I remember at the start of my product career, I, I was naive like most, and I felt like one of my core jobs was to administrate Jira because it made me feel good to organize Jira, to know what the team were doing, to get the backlog uh, into shape, to get you know our various uh, sprint boards set up, et cetera, et cetera. And it it got to the stage where an engineer would effectively write the Jira ticket and email it to me to add to Jira. But I made a rod for my own back, right? And I wasn't pushing back. And I learned after that experience that, you know, you kind of live and die as a team. You know, it's not that I'm succeeding or failing or I'm smashing it. It's either the team is succeeding or the team is failing, which means... You have shared responsibilities, which means, guess what? We're all responsible for Jira or whatever product tool you're using. Yes, m- myself as the PM and the UX, UXR might be responsible primarily for uh, the the discovery work, but I want engineers in the room. I want engineers feeding into not just um, the fun bit where you sit in front of customers, but the the creation of the artifacts that are going to actually shape what are we researching why are we researching what are our assumptions i want all those people in the room i think that that's another really great example where that where those human skills come in because unless you're prepared to have those conversations i'm sorry to say that some engineers and designers are just going to use the pm as their team administrator Mm -hmm. yeah it's like taking on the things that other people don't want to do and i think there's so many interesting points because it was like when I first started the PM, I lived down south and I feel like it's more of a thing there than it is in Manchester. But it's wearing that like people. I remember going to like a house party on a Friday night and people are like, what do you do? How many hours did you work this week? I worked 80 hours. And it's like wearing being busy as a badge of pride. And then as soon as they got to Manchester, it's like the engineers have left the office at four o'clock and you want to ask them a question. And they're like, I'm done for the day. Bye. And I was like, huh, what is this? But it's like that realization that just being busy all the time for the sake of being busy isn't what's going to leave the impact um and once you learn that and you learn that we can do this stuff as a team and actually we all contribute you a get all of the right thinking power with different perspectives coming together to say well what are our assumptions here what problems are we solving have we thought about this opportunity but b you also get that engagement and people understanding the why so that they can make better decisions further down the line so sometimes it can take a while to shift people from that space of like oh the product manager operates in this space and i operate in this space which are totally separate to working as a team but once you can do that i think you can add a lot of value yeah and um, if i can be quick as as bold uh evie to to uh, quote our good friend mr kagan you know he 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 talks hi marty <laughs> if he's listening wouldn't that be amazing he you know he one of the principles he he talks about um more for product leaders but i think it simply applies to any pm is lead with context not control that to me in a sentence is what great pms do they give their team context which therefore means they empower their team to step forward to step up to you know to fill the gaps as a team but to actually take a genuine interest not just in the code they're writing or the prototype they're building but in challenging the pm on why are we doing this you know what is the context and help me understand the context so i can help you find the right solution can i go back to um that question we talked about before is if 
what are the signs of someone who might mm. be teetering on the edge? Um, I'd like to follow up that question by asking if you do actually identify someone who you think does need support, how do you go about it? What, like, how do you how do you reach out to that person? What's the language to use? These are great questions, honestly. Um, yeah, it's. I think the first thing I should say, the first big caveat, which is caveat makes it sound negative, but from a safeguarding point of view, anyone, if anyone's struggling with their mental health and you want to reach out to them, first of all, I think yeah, it's a kindness and it's free other than a bit of your time. We should all be doing that. But we should all recognize our role. Our role is not in any part of that conversation to solve the problem. I think it's so important to say that, but it's even more important to say that with with, you, with the audience that we're talking to because product people want to solve problems. Someone else's mental health is not a problem you solve. If you're a doctor or a therapist or you've got some kind of medical training, different issue. So first key point is before you even have the conversation, be very clear in your own head on the narrative of the conversation and the point at which you would have to say, I'm afraid that I actually can't continue this conversation. We need to take it to the next step. But you know, the way you have these conversations is by just being human and just by being a caring, kind, compassionate person. You know, it's, I, it's, it's asking someone in simple terms, are you okay? But then it's using simple strategies to push aside some of the awkwardness. So I've noticed that you've behaved in a certain way, you know, something going on to demonstrate uh, that you've been observing a change. Um, you know, you can say things like, you know, in the last retro, you were really quiet. I just wanted to check if it, if everything's all right. You don't seem to have been yourself. You know, it's those kind of observations are quite a nice way to kind of lead into the conversation because i think it's quite unlikely with a work colleague especially in a virtual world that you're going to notice something that's so concerning that you're going to have sort of a direct question directly about a behavior or their mental health like we said earlier if you do then it goes back to using very direct very clear language but my general advice is call out the behavior you've you've observed and then extend the olive branch if you get someone who actually wants to open up to you, the next step is shut your mouth. <laughs> now, I, I say it often, we've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Not enough of us listen. If somebody's talking about their mental health, our job is not to pass judgment, not to give advice, not to share any kind of personal reflections per se, to listen, to let them express themselves, and then to ask if they're if they would like us to help in a meaningful way, and the most meaningful way that we can help them is not to fix the problem, it's, it's to signpost them. So get them the right support, whether that's to a doctor, to an employee assistance program, to a local charity. I always tell people, and I'll plug it here to download the Hub of Hope. It's an app that's built by the charity I do my mental health training with, and it's the uh, nationally recognized digital signposting tool um that the nhs recommend um, and that and that is effectively your route to, to signposting because open the app plug in your postcode and then you can direct that individual to get the help that they need yeah that's super helpful and i think there are a lot of organizations that have support within them as well which are a great place to start and i think touching on what you were saying about people listening nick i think there's another thing that i noticed when i worked in product is that 
especially people in leadership positions would often ask how you were and they didn't actually want to know the answer like as soon as you'd <laughs> say well actually I'm finding it all a bit tough at the moment I'm struggling sometimes people are like yeah cool well I've got like a million other problems and it's really about wanting to ask those questions and genuinely wanting to hear the answer and if someone responds and even laughs it off a little bit but you get a slight indication that maybe they are struggling it's trying to give them another opportunity to really talk about it and not just push it aside um, which I think can often happen in product just because everyone feels like they're so busy themselves. I love that advice that you gave about um, not trying to solve the problem and the best thing to do is to listen and to signpost because like hold my hands up I am so guilty of that like um, if ever my wife is struggling or upset with something and she's talking about it my reaction is okay I, I want to solve it I want to fix it so I'm like oh well if you do this this and this and she's just but you just stop trying to fix it I'm just telling you and then like I'll <laughs> process it like I don't need to fix it now and I think it like um, if I do these like personality tests that you do sometimes and like HR stuff it always comes out that like I want solutions and like that's a really good thing to have but it's also like know when to stay in your lane and you know, as you said, like there's there's a time and a place, and with someone's mental health, um, it it definitely isn't a time or place. That's a time to, as you say, signpost elsewhere. But having said that, I do one advice I, I I do try to give to people who are struggling, and I think it goes back to something you were saying before about control the controllables. I really like that phrase. Is you know you you don't choose to have depression, and you don't. It's not like if you do this, this, and this, it'll go away. But I always say, like, try and think about the basics. It's not always easy, but, like, can you try and get enough sleep? Can yeah. you try and get some exercise? Can you be social, even if it's difficult, diet, exercise? Like, those things are hard when you're going through depression, but if you can just, like, get a little bit of a routine around those things, it just gives yourself a better chance of it passing, I find. Yeah, I mean, that that is definitely sage advice. Um, so many of us forget the basics. And when you forget the basics, what tends to happen is that you'll tend to lean into coping strategies, which are unhealthy. It's normally involved substances and, you know, that can, that can lead to its own problems. But to your point, you know, I've suffered with, with depression and, you know, sometimes you've got to celebrate, celebrate the small wins. If you can get out of bed, that's a, that's a win right there you want to be celebrating that and shouting it from from the rooftops anyone listening that that has ever felt that will know how hard it can be to just sort of swing your feet out the duvet and put them on the carpet and actually get out of bed so i think you know celebrating what you're achieving rather than worrying about all the things that you're not achieving at that moment in time is also absolutely essential though sometimes very very difficult to do I agree. And I think sometimes, like you say, even then, no one else sees it, Like you can still seem like you're a functioning human being on the outside. So people just expect you to continue as you are. So being able to go, yeah, I'm still able to achieve all of these things and being able to recognize that that's great, but you can still go on a journey to get the support you need alongside that um, is powerful. And sometimes you need to know when to take a step back. Um. And then one of the other things you were talking about, Nick, in terms of all of the mindsets and what you can do as product people and cultivating a growth mindset, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
what advice do you have for people that are trying to go on that mindset shift journey to say right I now want to dial up these things and learn to say no and cultivate that growth mindset and become a great PM with all of those soft skills quote unquote um yeah how would you support people that are trying to achieve that so I think again it's two sides it's the individual and it's the leadership you know as an individual I think one of the first things you need to be thinking about is I think it's very easy to when you're in the product space to be swept up by the frameworks and the models and the gurus, you know, the I can teach you how to be a PM, PM in three days and get lost in agile jargon. All of that stuff's important, but it means that you make absolutely no time for all the skills that that we're talking about. So the starting point to me is having an intention. You either have an intention that you just want to want to become a library of frameworks. And I don't know how valuable that is, or you have an intention to find a bit more balance. And to recognize that the skills we're talking about, by the way, they're not just valuable as a PM, they're valuable in every facet of life. Yeah, I apply everything I learned as a PM to the rest of my life now and vice versa. The two things, you know, Evie, we spoke about this at length, the two things are so powerful together. Now, I think if you can find that balance and focus some of your time and energy, you don't have to sit in a classroom for eight hours to learn about being resilient. For me, the human skills are about breaking it down, iterating, you know, bite bite-sized chunks, listening to podcasts, reading blogs. You know, it isn't developing those skills isn't being it isn't being done in the traditional way of being sat in a classroom. It's getting out into the world, it's meeting people, it's practicing the skills, which I know sounds a little bit obvious, but I think with 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 some of these skills, they're so almost imperceptible and invisible. We don't realize we're practicing it when we're practicing it. Yeah, active listening. How many of us say we're great listeners? But if you ask a room full of a hundred people, ninety nine would say they're great listeners. But are they listening? And really, you know, it's almost like you listen to what's being said, but then you have to listen to what's really being said about what's being said. Yeah, active listening is getting into that second or third layer. It's picking up what someone actually means, the non-verbal cues, what they're not saying. But you only think about that if you have the intention. So, okay, I want to develop my listening skills, but first of all, let me define what I actually mean by listening. I I think about this quite a lot. Um, I've not formulated (laughs) uh, thoughts on them that are solid yet, so I'm just going to run with it a bit and and maybe ask you a question about it. I remember... (laughs) um, reading a blog article by Ken Norton, I think, in which he was saying that the most important part of a product manager's arsenal of skills is, you know, the soft skills for for lack of a better term. Um, He was saying like the rest of it, the frameworks, everything else experience can teach you that, but that ability to listen, to have empathy, to relation build, all that stuff. He said, those things are the most important part of the job. And those things can't be taught. But I think about that quite a lot. And I'm not sure I believe that they can't be taught. Do you do you think that these are skills that you can learn? Or it's either you've got a natural aptitude for these things or not? Like, what's your take on that? I'm probably slightly biased because I do I do run training and workshops on some of these things. I, okay. I, believe, I believe that the principles can be taught. That's the key thing. If you or Evie said, right, teach me to be resilient. 
I mean, unless I'm going to work with you as a one-to-one coach for six months, I'm not ready to teach you to be resilient, but I can teach you the principles, the principles for how you be resilient, for what resilience means, for breaking resilience down into the component parts. And some of the component parts of being resilient of any of these human skills or soft skills is habits and behaviors. But it, it's absolutely astounding me since I'm sort of you know, running Stories Matter that there's so many folks out there that don't intentionally think about their behaviors and their habits. Because by definition, most of our behaviors and our habits we picked up over time, they've been built into our subconscious. And very often, unless we can take a helicopter view and step out of our, our own body, and unless we've got a level of self-awareness, you don't always know whether or not the habits and the behaviors that that, that you're running are serving you. Or, or, or subverting you so sometimes it needs someone outside to take you back to first principles and to give you you know i guess the coaching work that even i do you know s- sticking up a mirror in front of you and asking those questions and saying well these are your behaviors and your routines your habits but are they already serving you are they allowing you to build the skills that we're talking about or actually do you think you need to maybe change change a few things and be a bit more experimental so I think principles, yes. You know, can you go on a week-long resilience course and come out and say, I'm resilient, I'm done now? No, because they're lifelong. All of these skills, you know, I always say, I'm stealing this from someone else as well. I'm, God, I'm still on all this stuff. But um, good friend Hayley Meeks said to me that she, once that she views herself as a perpetual student. And those two words to me hit home. You know, that defines my mindset in my life I'm never going to stop learning no and I also find that I think there's another part of that which is it's kind of like going to the gym like sometimes I've learned these skills or someone's like there's some things where like for example um it's not necessarily being taught a skill but it's being aware of something so just reframing your mindset on something so we were talking about fear earlier and we said that we apply a lot of the product management principles to things that we do. And instead of feeling fear when I go to do something now, I treat it like an experiment and say, well, what can I learn from this? And that's like a tiny mindset shift, which once someone, I like, whenever I heard that, I like adopted that and use it all the time. So you can kind of learn little techniques and then sometimes you forget them. And it's the same with all of these skills. It's like, sometimes I'll be really good at something and I know what serves me because I've worked out my values and my purpose and where I want to focus and then I'll do a reflection at the end of the week and realize that actually I've not been living in line with that and I need to make changes but unless you're doing that reflection and trying to exercise those things like going to the gym you can kind of start to lose those skills again so there's so many factors that make up being good at these human skills I think yeah there's no there's no simple answer to it and you know leadership have to take some responsibility you know are they are they giving their teams the time and space to reflect as you said Evie one of the one of the core components of being able to learn this is to actually reflect on where you're at I mean I remember in many of the teams that I worked as a PM and I love my time as a PM and when I worked in retail it was so much fun but I look back and I think I had no time I was fortunate that in the colours you, you were talking about earlier, Michael, I'm, I'm, I generally come out as primarily green, which I imagine won't surprise you, Evie, with a smattering of the others, a little less red, but more yellow and blue. I think I naturally developed a lot of these skills just through personality and personality traits. But you know, if leadership 
aren't giving their teams the opportunity to to have some reflective period if they're it's sticking in meeting after meeting after meeting if they're not making effective priority trade-offs if there's if there's no vision and strategy in place if the team's a feature factory you know the list goes on but if the product culture is not right it's very difficult to create those conditions for success for your teams because you're giving them no time you're giving them no headspace you're giving them no reflective space and these kinds of skills are not the kind of skills where you answer a multiple choice question and all of a sudden you've got a new certification it just doesn't work like that so, you know, I really think leadership play a role by being great coaches, as we kind of touched on earlier, giving people the time and space, but also by demonstrating these skills themselves. You learn a hell of a lot from the people around you. If you work for a great leader who's a great coach, I can guarantee you that you will learn what active listening really looks like. If you work for a leader who focuses on command and control, you're not going to learn anything about active listening, empathy or compassion. Yeah. And it's the same for those leaders. I know you said about holding a mirror up. You also get some great leaders that can challenge you in an effective way to say, hey, like, I've noticed that maybe you're not doing this so much. Yes. And I think sometimes we shy away from having those conversations because we also don't want to upset people. But actually, that can be the best thing to just have that direct chat and say, why don't we try and work on this? Yeah, especially when it's done in a supportive manner. Mm -hmm. I often find they're done very badly because it's it's a direct conversation with a level of either aggression or more passive aggressiveness <laughs> where you're not quite sure whether they're whether they're challenging you to support you or to tear you down and make themselves feel better yeah so there's a there's a definite clear clear line and I know which side I, I sit on <laughs> and I think this is kind of a good last question for us to end on because there was a question that we originally had that we wanted to ask that was more around mental health but I think it applies to mental health but also culture in general which is how much is it the individual's responsibility and how much is it the organization's responsibility um what would you say your overall stance is on that Nick? I, I won't give it percentages but i'll go back to what i said earlier that there's a shared collective responsibility i've, I've said about I've, I've kind of touched on it already but our education system needs to be set up in a way that we yeah set up our young people for success because they're the future product you know they're the product managers of the future i'm not going to talk about society and government because that's just going to get us into all sorts of sticky territory but if you then think about workforce and an individual as an individual starting by building self-awareness is always where i'm going to advise that that you go and we all have feelings and emotions because none of us are robots but we make a choice as to whether a, we, we're aware of how we're feeling, whether we accept and respect how we're feeling, and then if we do something about it, or as I've done in the past, we see how we're feeling and we push it to one side, we hide it, we ignore it, we run away from it. I get it. It's it's completely understandable, but it, it, it doesn't help. And when you start to build that self-awareness, then you can start to get onto what you talked about, which is treating your mental health like a muscle. And a lot of people now are talking about mental fitness. And you you touched on it earlier. We go to the gym, we work out our physical muscles, but we should be you should be treating our brain in a similar way. We should be going to a mental gym. We should be developing the skills that we're talking about by doing things like those reflective practices, by building some mindfulness in, dare I say. You know, these are the sorts of things that will develop 
your mental fitness and mindfulness means different things to different people and mindfulness isn't isn't for everyone by the way it, one, once you're in a good place as an individual the only other thing i'd say is that you then have to make and stick by and stand by your decisions about the people you surround yourselves with and the work the workplaces in which you're going to spend your time if a workplace crosses your boundaries or you're working for a line manager that is exhibiting toxic behaviors you always have a choice and i recognize that work provides security and um you know provides us with an ability to feed our family and put a, ha- a house over our, our head but speaking from experience when work makes you ill it strips everything away and no no money in the world would ever make me go back to work in those kind of environments and you know, that's why i believe that the workplace it doesn't have a responsibility to make us well, but as my good friend Ryan Hopkins puts it, it has a responsibility to make sure that we don't become any more unwell. And that means putting in the right structures, creating the right cultures, balancing people and profit, looking at line management as a vocation, and instead of being a command and control um, objective setter, let's be better coaches. If all of those things came together in a perfect world, I'm not suggesting that we wouldn't still have mental health challenges and that we wouldn't get unwell. But I think the prevalence of it happening and the intensity and the likelihood of it happening would be far, far less than it than it is today. And there are businesses doing things. I don't want to sit here and suggest that nobody's doing anything in this space. There's tons of people doing a lot of great work, but look at the numbers. After you've listened to the show, go and go and just Google a few stats on mental health at work in the UK and the numbers tell the story. Still far too many people are struggling with their mental health due to um, their workplaces. And I believe that line managers are one of the biggest drivers in either facilitating a great culture for your mental health or a terrible culture for your mental health. Yeah. And like you say, it's one of those things where it's unfortunate. It's not always, it's not like it's someone's fault. It's not like line managers are bad at what they're doing, but if they never learn that from, the people that manage them it's really hard it's like we have to start somewhere and start to teach and train and influence people to be able to support everyone else in an environment that everyone's probably going to thrive better in. yeah agreed um cool we'll do a little wrap up um a couple of quick fire questions that we've been trying to ask everyone um i'll try and make these quick sometimes people try to answer them and it's like you want to say a million things <laughs> what do you think the best thing is about working in product Honestly, the variety. Cool. As a PM, Perfect. every day was great because it was different. Yeah, I agree. I think that's my favourite part. Um, and I know we've touched on this in a few different areas, so it might be an easy one to wrap up on, but what would you also say the worst thing is? Feeling like you have to do it all. Yeah, I think we've gone into that one in enough detail, but I think that's a fair summary. Um, And is there a quick tip that you would give anyone to take away that they could take on from tomorrow to either look after their mental health or to try and cultivate a better mindset? You love these. That's a quick fire question. It's a big question. Um, I think building self-awareness, that has to be the starting point. Yeah. No, it makes sense. I think if you don't already know what's important to you, you're not going to make any progress on there. Um, cool. And then the last bit 
is, is there anything that you've read or learned recently that you think would be good to share that's had a positive impact on you? Yes. And I'm just going to, because I, I have so many audio books. I wanted to make sure I got the, the titles right. You do right, have so. so many. Nick's got loads of recommendations if anyone I've has got... book ones, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got two here that um, I've listened to. One of, well, one of these I'm listening to second time around and I've only just listened to it the first time, but I loved it so much. I wanted to go again. And the next one I've, I've already listened to once I listened to again. So the first one is called Never Split the Difference. And it's written by uh, a, an ex-FBI hostage negotiator. And it's all about negotiation, uh, communication skills and empathy. Incredible for business owners, Evie. So I definitely recommend you listen to it. But they're the human skills that every PM has to be great at. And honestly, some of it is like the days of Black Cat SEO. I'm like, can you really do this stuff? But, you know, he he speaks from from experience saving people's lives you know so i've got to, i've got to believe the guy so that's the first one the 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 second one is called a path through the jungle a psychological health and well-being program to develop robustness and resilience so that leans into our early topic it's written by professor steve peters and what i love about it is that so he he's a neuroscientist by trade he breaks down the neuroscience into practical frameworks and I'm sure on this call and anyone listening, we love a framework, but I love a framework when I can practically apply it as soon as I've listened or read or looked at it. And that book is full of things that I felt like I could instantly apply. So two two highly recommended audios there. No, and that's perfect because I think whenever we go to talk about these topics that are so big, like mental health and mindset, you can only cover them at a surface level when we have this kind of conversation and just raise awareness that these are things to look at but as you mentioned there's a load of resources whether you need support with mental health so if it's something you're considering or if you want to make improvement to mindset and different things in those areas so yeah there'll be a bunch of things in the show notes that people would be able to follow up on amazing well thank you very much for your time nick that's been a very in-depth chat about a million different things but all super super helpful things to help us become not just better at what we do for a living, but also hopefully build a better and happier life for ourselves. So super useful episode. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Nick. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe so you get to hear about our latest episodes as soon as they land or dive into our archives and check out some of our earlier episodes. If you're a fan of the show, we'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to recommend the show on social media or leave some feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening.